This is the 15 of 15 on 93 WIBC, the most interesting stories of the year. Now, from the WIBC News Center, here's Ray Steele. Hour number two of the 15 of 15. I'm Ray Steele, and we are halfway through our countdown of the 15 most compelling news stories of 2015, hence the catchy name, 15 of 15. If you've missed some of these, we will have everything at WIBC.com where you can relive the year if you so choose and relive them through these segments as produced by the 93 WIBC newsroom. We begin our number two with what we hope is the beginning of the end of one of the most awful stories that I've ever had to cover. It happened more than three years ago. It's the 15 of 15 on 93 WIBC. Number seven. The Superior Court judge in St. Joseph County who sentenced Mark Leonard called him the worst of the worst, the mastermind who manipulated others to take part in his scheme to blow up his girlfriend's home in the Richmond Hill subdivision, all in pursuit of a $300,000 insurance settlement. Stan Lear takes a look. Mark Leonard's defense lawyers sought a change of venue, which was granted, not surprisingly, given the massive pretrial publicity. Prosecutors sought to have the defendants tried simultaneously and were denied. That meant massive preparations would have to be repeated for each defendant. But Deputy Prosecutor Denise Robinson remained confident. Well, obviously we have a number of witnesses in this case that we need to get to South Bend. Uh, That has been a bit of a logistical nightmare, but uh, all of that is in place. Jury selection began June 8th in South Bend. It took a little more than a month to present the case, including the testimony of the owner of the home where the explosion occurred, Montserrat Shirley. She agreed to testify against the others in exchange for lesser charges. It took jurors only about three hours to convict Mark Leonard on all 53 counts. Leonard was sentenced to two life prison terms to be served consecutively without parole for the deaths of Dion and Jennifer Longworth and an additional 75 years on other charges including arson and conspiracy. Dion Longworth's father, John Longworth, took no satisfaction in that. Especially when uh, what I would really like is to give Dion and Jennifer hugs and that's not going to happen. There are three others waiting to face charges in the same case. Mark Leonard's brother, Bob Leonard, Montserrat Shirley, and an alleged accomplice, Gary Thompson. A fifth suspect, Glenn Holtz, has been charged but is not accused of direct involvement. Bob Leonard's trial is set for January 19th in Fort Wayne. Stan Lear, 93 WIBC News. And Stan Lear is with me now to uh, talk a little bit more about this case because, as uh, he said, we do have another trial coming up as this thing just seems to never want to end. And, yes, we have to cover it. And, and unfortunately, Stan, the family of the victims, they've got to live through this time and time again, however many trials we end up having. They and the lawyers. Yeah. Uh, this is a tremendous logistical challenge, a very long list of witnesses, a ton of forensic and other physical evidence that all has to be gathered and transported again for each defendant Uh, in each trial. uh, I don't envy that. I know we had a a huge price tag for the first trial. We're going to have big price (laughs) tags for all of these trials, but that is the necessity to pin down what was one of the just most, I don't want to say insane, just ridiculous conspiracies that we've dealt with for a while, and and we both had to deal with it the day that it happened Mm -hmm. uh, because we got called out to the Red Cross uh, facility, or at least the school where the 
the Red Cross had uh, centrally located when they evacuated the neighborhood, because I tried to get in the neighborhood and couldn't <laughs> and, uh, that, that morning when the uh, explosion or the morning after the explosion happened. Uh, and that still, that seems like it was yesterday, and yet it, it was so long ago. You know, I remember something that seemed significant at the time and seems obviously even much more significant now. One of the neighbors told me, well, gosh, they'd been doing some work on the furnace over there. Maybe mm. that had something to do with this. That was not an accusation. He was just saying the neighbors had done some work on the furnace. Right. And maybe that caused this. He had no idea oh. how that had happened. It was interesting to me that Terry Curry told me that uh, the investigation went very quickly in that direction. We didn't know that then, but uh, we know it now. No, and uh, yeah, the evidence that was there and the the personalities involved. I mean, just uh, yeah, Montserrat. Have we ever figured out how to pronounce her name? <laughs> I think it's Montserrata. Is it Montserrata? <laughs> I was calling her Montserrat because that was what we decided we'd call her. Yeah, but it, yeah, we had a dozen different <laughs> possibilities handed to us. But that, I mean, that in, a, in itself. However, as much as we can kind of uh, have some levity with that side of the case, I always come back to going to that school where Jennifer Longworth taught and hearing the stories of her kids who obviously had heard the news the, the Monday after this, and they had to show up to class. And the, the thing that will stick with me for the rest of my life, and I, I don't mean to get maudlin or emotional here, but she always came in and she always laid out the work that they were supposed to do early in the school day ahead of time. And she had already done that for that Monday before this awful thing. And that work was sitting there waiting for them. And those kids came in, and they started doing that work, and they were doing it with tears in their eyes because they knew what had happened wow. by then. And I, I can't I can't get through to I can't talk about that without that causing so many emotions in me so yeah it's it's hard it's hard for us i don't know about you and we've been doing this a long time but it's hard to cover something like this knowing what the plot was according to the prosecutors and try to be objective with these defendants we're both fathers we've both covered stories yeah. many times that involve children in in a similar fashion uh, one thing i think we can safely conclude is kids are remarkable yep more, more remarkable than adults. <laughs> and more sometimes. honest. And yes. more straightforward, etc. Stan Lear, thanks. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. It's the 15 of 15 on 93 WIPC. Number six. Roughly 30 years ago, HIV first appeared. It was a scourge. It was a killer. And then, thanks to medical advances and new treatments, it was largely contained. But not this year and not in Indiana. As Taylor Bennett reports, it was one of the worst HIV outbreaks in United States history this year, and it happened right here in Indiana. More than 180 people tested positive for the virus, most of them in Scott County, with health officials saying that the outbreak likely stemmed from needle sharing and intravenous use of prescription painkillers. The outbreak grew bad enough that the governor declared a health emergency. This is the state health commissioner. We, we want to get this outbreak under control, but we also want to deal with the components that led to this outbreak. Now, the numbers kept growing, but the state expected that. Concerned that the virus is spreading, but we've always contended that we would see a rise in cases for the next several weeks as we traced and contacted and tested the people who were already out in the community with the virus. Indiana eventually approved its first ever needle exchange programs in response to the outbreak, as well as reports of 
of spikes of hepatitis C and HIV cases elsewhere in the state. Taylor Bennett, 93 WIBC News. Thanks, Taylor. And as we end 2015, we end it with a total of four Indiana counties now with emergency needle exchange programs due to the HIV outbreak. Monroe County became the latest one. That is significant. One, it's a larger area than some of the other places where HIV has been a problem due to heroin use. And two, it's much farther to the north. It's creeping toward Indianapolis, perhaps. We don't have an emergency needle exchange in Indy right now, but with heroin as big a problem as it is, according to the state health department and various law enforcement agencies, that might be around the corner. Attorney General Greg Zeller, of course, has been a big supporter of the emergency needle exchange programs. He is also running for Congress next year. Might Zeller propose an expansion of needle exchange programs during the campaign as part of his platform? We'll just have to wait and see. Coming up, religion in public spaces fights played out in some smaller towns across Indiana. We'll tell you about one in Elkhart, including its unique conclusion, at least conclusion for now. And Indy is getting a new mayor, but he's certainly not a new face, an old hat in politics around here. We'll hear more about Joe Hogsett next as the 15 of 15 rolls along on 93 WIBC. You talked about them. We talked about them. It's the 15 most intriguing stories of 2015 on 93 WIPC. It's the 15 of 15 on 93 WIPC. Number five. The lawsuit came in October, filed by the Freedom From Religion Foundation and the ACLU on behalf of a family in the district that remains unidentified. The live nativity had been part of Concord's annual Christmas show for several decades, and the lawsuit was met by a firestorm of outrage from members of the community. Elkhart Truth Education reporter Michelle Sokol recalls the first board meeting after the suit was filed. Uh, hundreds of people came out to support the nativity scene. There were... There were shirts being sold. There's yard signs still up in people's yards saying they have the nativity scene. The next step was a preliminary injunction granted in district court that prevented students from actively participating in or practicing the live nativity ahead of the Christmas program, just a week before the show was set to go on. Fast forward to the actual performance. Music directors added in tributes to both Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. But before all of that, Sokol points out it was Concord that got in the last jab with a rather creative Workaround. Um, the, the curtain lifted and there was a nativity scene still there, which a lot of people were shocked by. Um, but they soon realized that those weren't the student performers that had stood on stage for the past decades. They were um, mannequins of some sort. And the applause, it lasted for half a minute. The FFRF was less than thrilled with the move, but legally there wasn't much they could do. Using mannequins in the nativity technically followed the injunction, as Sokol has spoken with the judge. You know, the judge says that it could be January of 2017 before this case goes to trial. So it, it could be dragging out for quite quite some time now. Which means there likely will be another holiday show before the matter is officially settled. Carl Stutzman, 93, WIBC News. Carl Stutzman's back here with me, and we've talked about this a lot. You and I have, Carl, because of your personal connection to this, being a graduate of Concord High School and, full disclosure, a past participant, multi-time participant, I believe, in the Christmas Spectacular, right? Yeah, I, I, all four years that I was in high school, I was involved in the Christmas Spectacular in some way, whether I was um, a performer in the show with the choir or if I was backstage working uh, the stagehand stuff, pulling ropes, setting up sets and things like that. I was a part of it every single 
single year. And, you know, before that, I'm, I was the fourth generation to graduate from that school. I watched a lot of family members participated in as well. Were you the one who told me that only a, a handful of people knew what exactly they were going to do with this latest show using the mannequins in the nativity? Yeah, there. I think the only people that really knew were either, as far as the students are concerned, probably just the ones that pushed the set out onto the stage. And as far as the administrators were concerned, it would have been just the choir teacher and uh, some of the music directors and probably the stage director there. And that would have been it outside of the administration that made the decision. Students had no idea uh, when it first came up. You know, as as you heard, it, it they didn't even know what it was. They thought the students were still on the stage in the nativity, which would have been a violation of the injunction that had been filed, and everyone was a little bit concerned. But once they realized that it wasn't a live nativity, and it was just mannequins, it was an uproar of applause, and students were just happy to see that they could have their show go on as normal and not have any further problems. Could that be a possible solution to all this? If you don't actually have students on stage, as part of the nativity, and you do, as they did this year, include mentions for other holiday celebrations, is, is, is that, you think, a possible solution? It doesn't sound like the Freedom From Religion Foundation would be satisfied with that, but perhaps a judge might. They won't, but that is a question for someone far more intelligent than <laughs> I. I would say from a legal standpoint, as far as uh, the suit that was filed against the school specifically references a live nativity scene. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily, I think, well, I should say a live nativity scene and what used to be part of the show was scriptural readings. I think both of those were named in the lawsuit. But you get rid of the live nativity scene aspect, and I think from just the scope of just looking at the lawsuit, yes, it is a fix, but is it going to be enough to stage further problems or keep further problems away? I, I, I can't answer that. I, I, don't I don't know. I mean, if you include multiple holiday celebrations, multiple religions slash non-religions, I think that might be a workaround, because that's what we had in Franklin County with the lawsuit over there, over the nativity display on the courthouse lawn. That ended up being the solution. The county commission came back and said, okay, we'll just open it up to everyone who would like to, and that lawsuit ended up being dismissed. Yeah, but the question there is, you're talking about lawn on a specific city property. In yeah. this case, we're talking about a school that receives both state and federal funds to operate. Mm. That's Again, we're not lawyers, so we're no, not, no, we're not. We're not going to speculate, but we'll probably be uh, talking about it in 2016 in some form or fashion. Carl Stutzman, appreciate it. Thank you. It's the 15 of 15 on 93 WIBC. Number four. 2015 was tumultuous, and yet one would imagine professionally satisfying for Joe Hogsett, who went from being U.S. attorney to being elected mayor of Indianapolis. Now, though, he has to actually be mayor since 2016 is upon us. Mike Corbin takes a look. Last year, it was one of the biggest topics of discussion in the Circle City. Will he or won't he? Should he or shouldn't he? But after much speculation and even consideration, Joe Hogsett made it officially official on January 21st. With wife Steph by his side, the former U.S. attorney filed the paperwork in the Marion County Clerk's Office to run for mayor. He cited concern about the city's homicide rate. The people of Indianapolis are concerned about public safety and crime generally. I think that the background uh, as a leading uh, prosecutor and uh, public safety official is, um, is very timely. 
By that time, Hogshead had raised about $1.3 million, an early indication perhaps of the strong support he had that eventually helped him defeat Republican businessman Chuck Brewer. And given his crime-fighting background, Hogshead unveiled his anti-crime plan in June. We need more police officers to combat Indianapolis's crime epidemic. And that is why we will hire 150 additional police officers and focus them on neighborhood policing. Among other things, Hogshead announced plans for early childhood education, boosting summer jobs for young people, and shoring up vacant housing and urban blight. If elected, I would direct the mayor's office to lead a neighborhood-by-neighborhood effort to bring together residents and key stakeholders to provide every area of our city with a document that can guide investment and guide development. In short, it was a long year for Hogsett and voters who know campaigning comes with the gig. But then on this past election night, Hogsett stepped into the spotlight of victory. We must ensure that if Indy welcomes all, so must we work to ensure that Indiana welcomes all. Because we are one city. Hogsett used that one city theme in his appointment of a bipartisan transition team. He says that because Indy is one city, his administration will include both Democrats and Republicans to some extent, something he reinforced just recently. I did not run to be, nor was I elected, mayor of the Democratic Party. I ran to be mayor of all. And his chance to prove just that comes immediately after he's sworn in come January. Mike Corbin, 93 WIBC News. Mike Corbin is here with me to talk some more about Mayor-elect Hogsett and soon-to-be Mayor Hogsett. Interesting, he won this election by such a wide margin, and as you pointed out there at the end, he has gone out of his way, it seems, Joe Hogsett has, to be bipartisan and to appear bipartisan. I don't know how long that lasts in his administration, <laughs> but uh, it's it's quite surprising. He, he is genuinely, he seems to have genuinely made that effort considering how wide his margin of victory was you know i wonder if this is a case and i have not seen him to ask him but you know what when you're in public office you cannot please everybody and certainly there are going to be days when you're going to please no one really and so i think that perhaps what he may be thinking is you know what i will go in and say I am, you know, the mayor of all of the people, knowing full well that you're not going to please everybody. Because, it, look, if he goes in and he is deciding to be the mayor of the Democratic Party, Ray, which he says he definitely is not. He says he was not elected to be head of the Democratic Party or mayor of the Democratic Party. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you think this gives him a better shot at pleasing more people, yet at the same time, knowing you're not going to please everybody? Does that make sense? Uh, it makes sense. And you know, this is a, I, I think, for lack of a better term, Indy seems like a bipartisan city. If there's going to be a bipartisan city in the state of Indiana, it's going to be the state capital. And we've seen that based upon what mayors of both parties have accomplished over the last few decades in this city. And, and perhaps Joe Hogsett will follow in that example. Do you think we'll see Chuck Brewer run again? And if so, where? You know what? I think that Chuck Brewer uh, 
has a shot because he does have name recognition. We know that business is very important here in Indiana. I think the question is, will he want to do it? You know, he's he's run for office. Look, he ran for office during a time, Ray, as we well know, when Joe Hogsett was the, you know, he was the favorite. And so Chuck Brewer was the underdog, but he hung in there. He 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 did his best as far as we could see. I think that his his campaign perhaps left a little to be desired. But hey, you know what? Joe Hogshead ran how many times before he finally, you know, won the race for mayor? So uh, I think I don't think we have seen the uh, last of Chuck Brewer. I'm sure that he will decide to come back. Look, he's got a little experience running for office now, so I'm sure he'll probably uh, give it a go at some other point for another office. 93 WIBC's Mike Corbin. Thanks. Thanks. Coming up, he had one of the best personal achievement, personal success stories, not just in Indiana, but perhaps the world. And then he became one of the worst stories that anyone can remember. The saga of Jared Fogle straight ahead. Also, does anybody really know what happened to I-STEP this year? I mean, really? Truly? We will take a look at the convoluted mess that is the state's standardized exam for 3rd through 8th graders next as the 15 of 15 continues on 93 WIBC. Counting down the top 15 stories of the year on 93 WIBC. It's the 15 of 15 on 93 WIPC, number three. At the beginning of 2015, he was one of Indiana's most recognizable natives. Shoot, he may have been the reason you went to Subway in the first place. Obviously, that isn't the case anymore, as Eric Berman reports. In 1998, I weighed over 425 pounds. I knew I needed to make better choices about my health and change the way I ate. By now, all America knows the change Jared Fogel made. He went on a diet of nothing but Subway sandwiches, two a day from a shop near his off-campus apartment at IU, and slimmed down to 180 in one year. Subway heard about it, and for 15 years, he was the face of the franchise. He made 300 commercials. He had cameos in Adam Sandler's Jack and Jill and a Sharknado movie. He started a foundation to promote healthy eating. And then the roof fell in. Jared, anything you want to say? So many people are devastated right now. Jared's fall began with the April arrest of the foundation's executive director, Russell Taylor, on child porn charges. In July, the FBI raided Fogel's Zionsville home. And a month later, prosecutors spelled out the charges. Taylor had put a hidden camera and clock radios to film minors while they showered or dressed and gave Fogel the tapes to watch. Prosecutors also revealed Vogel had sought out underage prostitutes in New York and Vegas. Defense attorney Jeremy Margolis immediately announced Vogel would plead guilty. He expects to continue to make amends to those people whose lives he has affected, and he at some point hopes to become once again a productive member of society. Fogel agreed to pay $1.4 million in restitution, 100000 to each identified victim. He said in court he developed a sex addiction after his weight loss. A judge sentenced him to 15 years and eight months, more than even the prosecution had asked for. Taylor, as the one who actually produced the videos, was sentenced to 27 years. Assistant U.S. Attorney Stephen DeBroda says he's satisfied with the sentences. We have vindication of the rights of 14 different children. We've gotten them a lot of restitution. They've had their day in court. Their lives were greatly disrupted by this criminal activity, but we've given them an endpoint where they can say, my voice got heard, what happened to me got respected, and two guys got heavily punished for it. A week before Christmas, Vogel was moved to federal prison in Colorado, where he's receiving counseling. He's also filed notice of an appeal. Eric Berman, 93 WIBC News. 
Eric Berman is back with me as the fall of Jared was certainly a big topic. It was a big topic nationally. I had someone ask me, how is this playing out in Indianapolis since Jared is a Hoosier? He's a local. And I'll be honest, before a lot of this happened, I don't know that I, and granted, I'm not a native here. I've been here four years now. Jared did not feel like a local person to me. I know he was, but I don't know. I mean, and you've been here longer than I. You've been here your whole life. Did did, did people think of Jared as a Hoosier and a, a proud Hoosier before all of this happened? Yeah, very much so. Okay. In, in particular, the Indiana University community. Again, sure. It was at, at IU where the Subway Diet took place and every so often, you know, it was like clockwork, every three or four years, big feature on Jared in the Indiana Alumni Magazine. Hey, look at the, the great things he's done. I think the last one of those was a month or two before the FBI raid. Mm. But apart from that, you know, Jared used to be part of the all-night pre-race party uh, here on WIBC. He'd stop in as a celebrity guest. Um, he did his share of local events. Obviously, he traveled around the country as ended up being part of the indictments. But uh, but he was visible locally. I think, uh, you know, he was on that list of folks like David Letterman and Jane Pauley and the others where Indiana sort of felt like we'd shared him with the world. And now the state's sort of trying to forget that. And yeah, nobody really knew him except perhaps Russell Taylor. Never heard apparently. of him. He, he's from Illinois. He just crossed the line. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what I mean is nobody knew what was going on except yeah. maybe for Russell Taylor and a couple of others, as it turned out. Yeah, it, it's the proverbial double life. Uh, and in fact, uh, you'll recall when uh, when all this came out, you know, first the first shoe to drop, as we mentioned, was Russell Taylor. And at that time, it was sort of a footnote. It got extra attention because, hey, he's part of Jared's foundation. No one, to my recollection at that time, was saying, geez, I wonder if Jared's wrapped up in this. And then when the FBI raid took place a couple of months later at Jared's house, even then you could hear everybody just, God, we so want to believe this is all a mistake. Maybe they're just gathering more evidence against Taylor. Oh, please let it not be. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. People, I've never heard people as rightly invoking the innocent until presumed guilty principle mm -hmm. as much as with, with Jared. People were really willing to give him that presumption until the facts came out. And OK, then the thing that stood out in court for me was Judge Tanya Walton Pratt, the federal judge who gave the sentence in the midst of Jared's tearful apology, because there's always a tearful apology from defendants in cases like this. He's talking about how much his wife or his now ex-wife and his family has lost. And Judge Pratt, in the middle of it, you don't really see this, Judge Pratt cut him off and said... You gave her $10 million. She'll be okay. Yeah, that, that that was remarkable. And it was at that point that you sort of knew, yeah, he's going to be on the high end of the sentencing guidelines. Yeah. And as we mentioned, it was even above the sentencing it guidelines. It was. And, and that is what allowed him to appeal. So exactly. this case is not over. Right. Eric Merman, thanks. It's the 15 of 15 on 93 WIBC. Number two. 2015 in education. It might end up being the year that led to the death of ISTEP. There have been problems with the exam for years, notably with computer glitches, the servers of the now former maker of ISTEP, CTB, not being able to handle thousands of students taking the test online simultaneously. In 2014, we found out ISTEP would have to change because of the new academic standards mandated by the legislature so the state could drop the Common Core standards. Though the new standards borrowed heavily from Common Core, it meant the exam 
exam would be longer, but no one expected it to almost double in length to about 12 hours total. There were a number of reasons given for this, but Governor Pence eventually made the call to shorten ISTEP. I've instructed the Office of Management and Budget to contract with a nationally recognized expert in accountability and assessments to help us do that. It would end up being one of several disagreements between the Republican governor and Democratic State Superintendent Glenda Ritz, disagreements that have been near constant since both were elected in 2012. Pence said if Ritz's office had set up a pilot ISTEP exam to weed out unnecessary questions, ISTEP would not have been as long. However, Ritz's spokesman Dan Altman said... The federal government specifically told us that we could not do that. The federal uh, government said you could. Yeah, yes, they specifically told us that we couldn't do that, and we told the State Board of Education that uh, in the June 4th meeting of last year. Ritz also did not have to shorten the exam if she didn't want to. The ISTEP contract, after all, was with her office and not the state. But Ritz, the governor, and lawmakers ended up working together and cut roughly three hours off the test. Problem solved? Not exactly. During the exam, principals like Jim Beaver of Greenfield Intermediate School said they heard more worry from students about ISTEP this year than in the past. It's the first time our students have seen a test that is quite this challenging, and uh, there is a lot of anxiety. Students are worried about their performance. There also apparently was a misconception among at least Mr. Beaver's students that they would have to repeat their grade if they didn't pass ISTEP, even though that isn't true. I've absolutely had more students express to me their concerns concern that, that they're, they're, the I-STEP is tough, they don't think they're doing very well, and they're afraid they're going to be retained. I, I think we have many students who make that assumption. While students were taking the spring 2015 exam, the state learned just how much the next I-STEP would cost since 2015 was the last year of CTB's contract. Ritz says those contracts would cost the state $133 million. That includes $38 million over two years to testing company Pearson to write the new I-STEP. Ritz was not happy about it, she said, though she claimed that spending was necessary to meet state and federal testing mandates. In the midst of all this, the State Board of Education was made over by the legislature. That's because the board had typically been at odds with Ritz, and their meetings had grown to eight hours or more, sometimes due to bickering and long speeches. Ritz herself decided she had had enough of what she saw as interference with her job from the governor's office, and the only Democrat holding statewide office decided to run for governor herself. However, Ritz dropped out a few months later. She had trouble raising money against the now presumptive Democratic nominee, John Gregg. Back to the I-STEP. Talk that scores would possibly be lower began in the summer. The State Board of Education decided to proceed with a possible change to the A2F grading system as a result. Superintendent Ritz from a July board meeting. Their schools would be known as failing when in actuality that's really not the case. What Ritz wanted to do was either pause the use of A to F grades or have the option to choose the better of a school's last two grades. The new vice chair of the state board, Sarah O'Brien, was not in favor at the time. I'm just a little confused on why we're having this conversation now before we even have the scores back. And then the raw I-STEP scores began to trickle in. They were not good overall, and even opponents of pausing A to F grades began to, at least in part, change their minds. Then the bickering between the board and Ritz began again, as the board accused Ritz's office of withholding data the board needed to set the pass-fail line for I-STEP at their October meeting. CTB and the Department of Education are working together to gather that information so that our experts can dig in and make sure that we're providing valid and reliable test results across the state. Sarah O'Brien talked talking about a study by CTB that was not given to board members, she said, before the 
until the night before their meeting. Dan Altman, Ritz's spokesman, says the board had all the information it needed. We're working as hard as we can and as fast as we can to get this information out. Um, because of uh, the actions from yesterday, though, that's facing delay, and that's something that's a concern to us. Then, a state board investigation showed that there were differences between the online version of ISTEP and the paper version, making the online version more difficult. That necessitated a slight adjustment in the scores, including the pass-fail line, by the board. Late in the year, a story from the Indianapolis Star revealed that some CTB employees said there were inaccurate ISTEP scores that were left in place, despite their complaints to CTB management. Glenda Ritz's office says it investigated those claims and found the scores were not lower overall due to those CTB glitches, though to be sure, Ritz still did not favor using the exam to determine A2F grades. Will lawmakers do anything about this in 2016? It appears so, at least according to House Speaker Brian Bosma. He says it's time for ISTEP to go. The administration of the test, especially over the last several years, has been uh, nothing short of a fiasco. And uh, I've been talking to superintendents and teachers and school boards all around the state, community leaders. It is time to change. However, Bosma says replacing ISTEP probably cannot happen immediately. There are a lot of nuances to this. It's just not as simple as saying, okay, we're going to grab this test and start administering it. It's going to be difficult to do uh, in 10 weeks, which is how long the session will be. Why hadn't it been done before? Bosma says they couldn't under the federal No Child Left Behind Act. However, No Child Left Behind has since been replaced. Just a few weeks ago, President Obama signed into law the Every Student Succeeds Act, which gives states more flexibility in how they handle standardized testing. As 2015 ends, we still don't have final I-STEP scores yet, and we won't have final A2F grades for the 2014-2015 school year until at least January of 2016, and perhaps later. We are down to number one on our countdown of the 15 most compelling stories of the year, and in my opinion, there could only be one. It's been the dominant story for the last two years, really, and will probably be dominant in 2016. LGBT issues and the continued fallout from last year's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The 15 of 15 continues next on 93 WIBC. This is the 15 of 15 on 93 WIBC. It's the 15 of 15 on 93 WIBC number one. It isn't a word, but in Indiana, it might as well be. RIFRA stands for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and it will reverberate for a very, very long time, especially in 2016. Eric Berman takes a look at our number one story. RIFRA supporters said it was just an Indiana version of the federal RIFRA, passed overwhelmingly under President Bill Clinton. But Indiana's bill covered the religious beliefs not just of individuals, but businesses. By the time the debate reached the House, opponents were calling the bill a license to discriminate. Governor Pence insisted it wasn't. This is the law in 30 states, and under federal law, it's the law in 50 states today. This is not about legalizing discrimination. It's about restricting the government's ability to intrude on the religious liberty of our citizens. But Advance America leader Eric Miller, who spearheaded the drive for the law, proudly proclaimed the bill would let bakers and florists refuse to service same-sex weddings. Pence went on ABC's This Week and repeatedly sidestepped questions about whether that was true. Do you think it should be legal in the state of Indiana to discriminate against gays or lesbians? George, it's a yes or no question. Who's your, 
well, come on. Hoosiers don't believe in discrimination. Conventions, businesses, and other governors began pulling business out of Indiana. House Speaker Brian Bosma joined Senate President David Long to put together a trailer bill explicitly declaring what Pence hadn't. The statement of fact, in quote, that this allows the denial of service to any segment of the Hoosier community. It does not, and those who say that are wrong. To put an exclamation point on that, if we need to clarify that, that is our goal. Pence said he should have been more clear on ABC and signed the following up bill. But Democrats voted unanimously against it, saying it didn't go far enough. Senate Minority Leader Tim Lannon has introduced a bill adding gays and lesbians to Indiana's civil rights law. I think we have to overcome some of the negativity that occurred in the last session. And what a better way to do it than show uh, compassion and common sense when it comes to this idea of, of, of Indiana being a state of opportunity. Senate Republicans have introduced their own version. Pence hasn't taken a position yet. He says he'll share his thoughts after legislators convene in January. Eric Berman, 93 WIBC News. And Eric Berman is here with me with more on RIFRA and this coming LGBT civil rights bill. It, it looks like I don't want to say everyone is on the same page because they're not, because it seems that the Freedom Indiana side, the pro-LGBT civil rights side, their general take right now is, well, this looks like a good first step. It sounds as if they want more than what Republicans in the legislature might be offering here. Yeah, they, they clearly want more. I mean, putting aside the hell no caucuses on both sides, there's uh, folks who say four words in a comma, no compromise. There's folks on the right who say we shouldn't be doing this at all. But of the folks trying to find a middle ground, there is... There's a difference between those who say, hey, this is a good starting place for discussion, and then there's those who say, well, this is a terrible starting place for discussion. We're glad that we're at least having a discussion, but we hate the text of it. The bottom line, of course, is this is going to take a lot of negotiating, and then they're going to have to somehow get a majority of votes into Republican-controlled chambers. And as we mentioned in the piece, it's still unclear which way Governor Dan Governor Pence is going to come down. Freudian slip. Um, Eric Miller, Advance America, a very powerful person in Indiana not all that long ago, held a lot of sway over a lot of Republican lawmakers in particular, but over the General Assembly in general. He has characterized this as the bathroom bill, if you will. It's all about perhaps men being able to use women's restrooms and women's locker rooms in public. And that is all he is talking about. And it seems as if no body, at least no, uh, I don't want to say serious person, because I don't want to impugn anyone's position here, but not a lot of people are paying attention to Eric Miller anymore. I think that's true, although the bathroom element uh, raises some interesting questions, because one of the interesting things, we had a story about this a couple of months ago when Freedom Indiana launched its renewed push this time for this law. Mm -hmm. Their emphasis now is shifting from gays and lesbians to the T of LGBT, the transgender, and that's that's where that bathroom issue comes into play. If you live as a woman, which bathroom do you use? And for those folks, a tiny segment of the population, but they are very much part of this debate, that is a critical issue. That is no laughing matter. And obviously for Eric Miller and his troops, it's it's no laughing matter. There's actually a bill apart from the two competing bills on LGBT. LGBT rights and what do we do? There is a standalone bill to cover single sex bathrooms and taking the Eric Miller position. And we'll see where that goes along with the, the basic bills. But you're right about Eric Miller. Even during the debate this year on RIFRA, 
the rally that uh, that the uh, pro Rifra forces put together early in the debate, it was Eric Miller's baby, Eric Miller and Micah Clark. That was not a big rally. That was maybe a hundred people. This is someone who used to routinely draw a couple of thousand people. And with the way that this blew up in the face of the governor and those who voted for it, um, if anything, you have to assume that his influence has diminished because there's a lot of people over there who are looking at him as the guy who got us into this mess that we now have to get out of. That said, he still does have troops. The rally that they had on Organization Day was much larger than the RIFRA rally. That actually was uh, the Pastors Alliance and mm-hmm. not uh, Advance America. Right. But there's a lot of folks feeling strongly about this who are certainly uh, Eric Miller's allies on this issue. And they still do wield a lot of support in certain districts. You know, all politics is local. And there's going to be pressures coming from all directions as this session gets underway. I was going to ask a second ago why you thought Governor Pence had not taken a position on this yet. But then I thought back over the few years of his administration, this isn't the first time Governor Pence has waited to take a public position, particularly on something controversial. I've been listening a lot to the set, the cast album of Hamilton, the uh, Broadway musical on mm-hmm. Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. And Aaron Burr has a recurring motif in several numbers of talk less, smile more. <laughs> and that has, you're, you're right, been uh, where the governor has been on a lot of issues. He does not roll something out until he's ready to roll everything out and has all his talking points together. The problem with doing that is when you're silent and say, I, I'm still studying this, It's unclear whether this means he doesn't know what to do, or he's waiting on the timing, or he's negotiating toward a final product that he can yet eventually unveil. It's not clear which of those he is. He he has been a very close-to-the-vest governor on on most issues for all three years of his term, and is taking some flack on it for this issue. But the Senate Republicans are taking the lead on this. One question will be how quickly David Long, the uh, Senate president pro tem, and also the chairman of the Senate Rules Committee, which will hear those bills, how quickly he schedules that. Is this something that they want to move through quickly, get the debate behind them, or are they going to take some time while they try and negotiate a compromise? Lastly, one very recent component to this, and it happened just before we produced this piece for the 15 of 15 show, and that is Sue Elsperman, the lieutenant governor possibly leaving just before re-election time for the governor and herself as his running mate to possibly take the job as Ivy Tech's president. There had been some suggestion that there was a split between Governor Pence and Lieutenant Governor Elsperman on this particular issue, and that, whether she was asked to leave or whether she chose to leave, was the impetus for that happening. Is there any truth to that? Who knows? In short, uh, it d- d- depends on who you believe. The The official word from both the governor and the lieutenant governor is no, there is no truth to it, that this is just a tempting opportunity that uh, came up. It's not a sure thing, of course. It's the Ivy Tech board that decides whether Sue Elsperman gets that job or not. Um, it'd be fascinating, I suppose, if she didn't get that job and ended up not on the ticket. But 
at the moment, it depends on who you believe. There have been reports saying that this is a shove from Governor Pence. Our in-house guy on the on the inside has been Abdul Hakim Shabazz, who reported exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. The way I parse the statement from the governor, the governor said in his statement, he has not met with the media on this face-to-face, but said in a written statement that he strongly encouraged Sue Elsperman to seek that position. That could be read as giving her the shove. I read it more as, wow, they're in- you're interested in that position? Hey, that'd be a great position. Go for it. Which is not the same thing and lines up more with the Abdul interpretation. But this is very much a question of uh, who you believe the folks who know best ain't telling. It was perhaps the big story of 2015, and it's probably going to be the big story, certainly one of, of 2016, the continuing fight over LGBT civil rights. Eric Berman will, of course, cover it for us here at 93 WIBC. Eric, thanks for the report. Great pleasure. That'll be all for the 15 of 15 and for 2015 for us here at the 93 WIBC News Center. We've enjoyed it, and we've enjoyed having you along for the ride, and we hope you will continue with us and get your news right here from 93 WIBC and WIBC.com in 2016. All of these 15 of 15 segments are at that website, by the way, WIBC.com. We invite you there. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Ray Steele. The news from Fox News is next on 93 WIBC.